Progressive Rugby League. G'day, John O'Duncan. You know, following the UK game from afar over the last few years, sometimes it seems like British Rugby League fans are in a state of semi-permanent exasperation. And it's understandable, I guess, it's a tough time and money's getting tight. But these leaner times seem to amplify emotion and exacerbate the ongoing divides within the game about its erection, heartlands v expansion, promotion relegation v franchising, and of course, the question of what money should go to whom. It can seem fraught and fractious at times, and then you add in the setting of the cities and towns, British Rugby League and habits. These are parts of the country that have historically been let down and are now experiencing an undeniable political shift. So it all adds up, and you can be forgiven for thinking there's an underlying feeling of frustration and restlessness within the UK Rugby League community. But then there's Rob Burrow. You spend a bit of time thinking about his life, from the highs to the heartbreak, and things don't seem so complicated anymore. The divides within the game don't seem so inevitable. Quite simply, Rob Burrow is the best of rugby league. His outstanding career was a testament to resilience, perseverance, skill, intelligence and belief. The smallest guy in every game he played, he had to prove himself more than anyone else. And he did it over and over and over again, representing his country and steering his hometown club to title after title after title, including World Club Challenge trophies against the NRL's best. And since he was diagnosed with motor neuron disease in December 2019, Rob Burrow has shown how powerful a positive mindset can be, not just for himself, but for his family, his community, and his sport. Rob Burrow and his wife Lindsay's response to this gut-wrenching diagnosis has been a gift to us all, really. A timely reminder that we're all ultimately at the mercy of an unpredictable world, and that showing a bit of love and care for each other, as cliched as that sounds, can go a surprisingly long way. There's been a lot written and said about Rob and Lindsay Burrow over the last year or so, but one article really got me. A beautiful piece published in The Guardian recently, written by Donald McRae, which gave us a, a glimpse into the reality of day-to-day life for the Burrows. The hard work, the struggles, but also the defiance, the smiling light in the face of the toughest of situations any family could imagine. I'm so glad Donald McRae has agreed to join us to talk about this piece that really beautifully conveys the best of us and the best we can be through the story of Rob and Lindsay Burrow. Donald McRae, a warm welcome to the Progressive Rugby League podcast. Hi, Jono. Thanks for having me on. Don, I'm talking to you from Australia, and I know Australian listeners and non-UK listeners are very much aware of Rob Burrow's motor neurone disease diagnosis, but UK listeners yep. will probably be across the details a lot more. So for those of us outside the UK who aren't as close to the story, can you start off by giving us a sense of Rob's current condition? What's the latest there? Yeah, well, I think just for those of you who don't know the full story, he, he was diagnosed with MND back in December 2019. And, you know, he, he absorbed that news in, a, in an unbelievably positive fashion. But I think he hit a little bit of a low at the beginning of this year because he lost all his ability to talk. And without being able to communicate, he felt even more like a prisoner in his own body. I guess we can all imagine the loneliness of that. His mind is active, but he he cannot communicate, and his wife and little kids are about him. He can't move his body to hug them, to touch them. He can't say any words to say how he's feeling. And it was in the midst of lockdown over here. Things were, were hard, obviously. 
So he, he had a tough time, but I must say, here we are in, in May 2021, and although you know, physically, I think he continues to decline. He is in a he's in a good place, mm. and the big shift has been this piece of technology called I think it's called eye gaze, mm. which means that he actually stares at a, a monitor and picks out individual letters to form a sentence. So he can actually communicate now, and this has changed his life again hugely. And you know, he's such a cheerful guy. And I, I mean, I, I spent quite a lot of time with him and Lindsay, and. He didn't stop smiling most of the time, which, you know, is incredible. Mm. So it's quite slow, you know, for him to say something. You have to be patient. But Lindsay and I were yucking away, uh, nonstop talking in between. So time kind of flew. And he was able to tell me, you know, how he's doing. And on the whole, he he's doing amazingly well psychologically. Yeah, that eye gaze technology is quite incredible. Uh, He read out a book near the start of this whole ordeal for the technology to understand or to get a grasp of his voice. And now he can communicate with those words that he read out. That's quite incredible. John, it's quite moving too, because, you know, I guess most of us, when we think of M&D, we think of someone like Professor Stephen Hawking, who, you know, had that sort of robotic American voice Mm. um, when he communicated. Obviously, he wasn't using the same technology. So here, in this situation, we have a (laughs) rugby league little man, you know, in stature, Mm. but a, a giant, certainly in the UK, and his voice is so familiar. And even though he cannot talk, because of this technology, we have actually virtually a facsimile of his voice coming out. It's his same accent, same intonation. So it is immensely moving because he has a man who cannot talk, and yet he is able to communicate. And he, it's a bit like he sends little text messages to you. Mm. And instead of it being texted to you, it's verbalized, and it is actually his voice. So Lindsay, his wife, said, you know, for them, it's also lifted them hugely because if he wants to say he loves them, you know, they can hear them. If he wants to say the kids, bloody get down off that chair, you know, they'll do that. Mm. So, you know, again, it's it's lifted him hugely. Yeah. Now, most people broadly understand what motor neurone disease is and kind of how it works on the body. But did getting up close to this condition give you an additional insight into how it manifests, not only for the person with the disease, but for their close family and friends too? Yes, it did. It's, I mean, there are many, obviously, vicious and harsh diseases that, you know, people suffer from. But I think this must be one of the worst. And I think it's just the fact that mentally he is totally the same person, which manifests itself in his sense of humor. He's always making little quips. Mm. So he's totally switched on. But what it does, it basically shuts down the body stage by stage. And there are forms of the disease. Someone like Stephen Hawking lived, I think, almost 50 years with the disease. Obviously, as Rob would say, he he kind of wasted his time working out the the meaning of uh, existence and and how the the world came into existence. Rob is too busy watching The Simpsons and The Office and other stuff like that. But um, again, that's just a side of his his sense of humor. But I think for me, it is shocking to see what it does to the human body. And basically... I think Rob, he has a particularly aggressive form of the disease. His life expectancy is two years. Well, that was what he was told in December 2019. So he's, he's aware that death is coming, but he always you know, says that 
he accepts the diagnosis mm. totally, but he fights the prognosis. So he's going to live as long as he can against odds. But yeah, John, it gave me you know, such a cliche to say, it gave you a new perspective. Yeah. But yeah, you know, moaning about too much work or you know whatever minor things in in my life, you know, you just look at this man, what he and his family have to endure, and it's quite a sober insight into this awful disease. Yeah. Now, Don, one thing your piece does wonderfully is to paint a picture of the relationship between Lindsay and Rob Burrow. I'd love you to, if you if you could, spend a moment reflecting on the relationship between Rob and Lindsay Burrow. It's quite a special one. Oh, uh, it is. Um, you know, I was quite anxious about doing this, this interview because um, how do you interview a man who can't talk and also interviewing a person and his wife as they face up to his death? So sad, so difficult. But they put me at my ease instantly. As soon as I sort of started talking to them, I knew this was going to be absolutely fine. And they are an unbelievable couple. He is 35, and I think Lindsay is much the same age, maybe a year younger. And they started going out together when they were 15. They always make the quip that Lindsay stood him up for their first date. Robert asked her out to the movies, and um, she said yes. And then on the afternoon of the, the date, I think her mother was teasing her, and she just kind of got so awkward and shy and just thought, oh, I can't go. So she didn't go to the movie, so he was left standing outside waiting. But she soon, you know, within a couple of days, you know, they, they were on together and they've been together ever since. So they've got three young kids, all under the age of 10, and an unbelievable couple together. You can just see how they support each other. Obviously, as a rugby man, he understands the importance of the team. And wow, this is an incredible team, these two together. And of course, they do have low moments. Lindsay told me that, you know, she is a physio, so she has a medical knowledge. Mm. She had worked with MND patients for many, many years before her husband diagnosis so she knew what was coming so they were shocked to hear the diagnosis they weren't expecting it and i think in the immediate aftermath john the, the next few days she was understandably you know in pieces and she talks about going to get some money out of a cash point machine as they call them over here and she just couldn't think of a pin number and just burst into tears because it was all overwhelming and he had quite a talk to her and they have this no tears policy that doesn't mean they don't face the sadness and accept the magnitude of what is happening hmm. but he said to Lindsay, there's no point if we wallow in in our sadness because we've got limited time so let's make the most of the time we've got together mm. and she said her whole perspective changed in that instance and mm. of course she still has moments she's exhausted because as she said which for me was one of the most moving things her role in his life has changed she's almost no longer his wife she cares for him now full time mm. so she's cares for her husband full-time basis she's a mother to three young kids she's a part-time physio so this woman does not have a lot of time in her life and there are moments when she she does feel a bit desolate but then she says she always looks at her husband and thinks gosh what she has to endure is nothing compared to what he has to endure mm. and if he can be so positive she can be positive and i think he in turn is lifted by her because he also you know he's a human being he has low moments and he then looks at Lindsay, who he calls superwoman which she doesn't like <laughs> He just thinks, well, there goes Superwoman, you know, still keeping us going. You know, I'm going to keep going. So they, they work together amazingly well. And it's, it's moving and uplifting to be in their company. Yeah, I mean, really, it's the perfect illustration of real love. I mean, popular culture gets the real love mixed up with romance and lust. But this relationship is, yeah. is real love. Now, Don, I'm sure I'm not alone in having shed some tears upon reading this piece. 
And, you know, Don, I'm a bit of an overthinker. So after the tears, I was trying to analyze exactly, you know, why I was crying a bit. And I guess my cheap psychology was telling me there's a, a bit of self-centeredness there in imagining myself or a family member in that situation. And then there's a level of guilt maybe where you feel so awful for Rob and Lindsay and you kind of feel helpless. But the thing is, Rob makes it clear he doesn't want sympathy. He'll accept and appreciate empathy, but sympathy is not overly useful to him right now. And I guess it's, a, it's an example of this dedication that Lindsay and Rob have to focus diligently on the positives. And I guess, uh, well, is that an accurate representation of, of what you found? People, you know, have been kind about this interview that we did. A lot have said exactly like you, they were moved to tears. And the weird thing is I wasn't. And I think that was because I was fortunate to be actually in the company and see yeah. them as a couple. And yes, of course, the sadness I feel is I can't easily put into words because... As Lindsay said at one stage, you know, they had the perfect life. Mm. You know, he had had a wonderful career. She was in a job she loved. He was coaching at Leeds. They've got these beautiful kids. Things were, were so good. And it's now it's coming to an end. So the sadness is, is absolutely there. But for me, I just actually felt more uplifted mm. um, than anything because I also felt I learned quite a lot about just living. Mm. And they imparted that knowledge with such a, a light touch. But I think also it came over quickly to me that he didn't want sympathy. Mm. And in a way, it would be insulting to him if I was looking sad yeah. and talking about the pitiful nature of his life, because how is that going to make him feel? Mm. And he set such an example. You know, we're living in this moment. Okay, I might not be here in a year or less, who knows? Hopefully it'll be longer than that. Mm. But in this moment, I am going to live this moment to absolute fulfillment. And that's why I didn't... You know, Phil, I just felt actually inspired by them. And the last interview we did was on a public holiday over here. It was pissing down, <laughs> awful, typical English holiday weather. Mm. It was awful. And it was in the evening that we spoke. So it was kind of a bleak setting. But uh, there's so much light in them that I just, again, it just gave me such perspective. But totally, Johnny, your sort of human reaction is echoed by so many people mm. and I think I would have been exactly the same yeah. if I hadn't been lucky enough to you know spend time with them yeah the other thing Don that it made me think about is that you know for those faced with their own or their family members mortality on a, a daily basis over an extended period such as for an M and D diagnosis it seems they get I, I guess an unintended window into how precious life really is and I guess this experience would demand that you take stock and appreciate the little things and the delicacy of life and when you're faced with something like that it seems like you experience a like a rare depth of what it means to live a human life and I guess it's it's sadly ironic that it takes something like that to enable you to go that deep because I mean for those of us who are lucky enough not to have our mortality thrust upon us our understanding can just never reach that depth. So there's a, a sad but unavoidable irony, I suppose. I mean, some of the things Rob says in the article are just so beautifully philosophical and succinct and cut directly yeah. to what's important. His words were, were stunning, really. Yeah. Yeah, and we did it in two ways. The, in the actual interviews, um, I would ask him a question mm. and it would take, I would say, at least two minutes for him to compile a sort of one-sentence answer. And Lindsay and I were talking in that time, and he didn't mind that. But for the more complex questions, like when I was asking about facing up to death, we decided it would be best if I emailed those questions to him. Mm -hmm. And then he, 
you know, would have time to actually put his thoughts together. And that's why I think the answers are so kind of philosophical mm. and kind of deep, but with, without being sort of pretentious in, in any way. It's just they are thoughtful answers mm. because I think he took time to work out what he wanted to say. So it, it worked out well. It, it was a balance between sort of his short answers and then the much more in-depth answers via email. Yeah. Now, Don, for those of us outside the UK, can you give us a sense of what the reaction has been to Rob's predicament over the last year or so? Because rugby league is, of course, a fairly minor sport in the UK as a whole, but it seems like this has somewhat captured the the wider imagination. It has. And, you know, I think when the initial diagnosis was announced, people outside sport didn't know who he was. But I think it was quite a turning point. The BBC made a 30-minute documentary which came out i think in this december so a year since his diagnosis Mm. and it was beautifully done and at that stage he could still talk but his his voice was going so it was kind of deeply moving and i think that changed people's perspectives and then kevin sinfield his teammate Mm. and captain and our coach director rugby i should say at least he did that epic feat you know, 26 miles a day, uh, seven days in succession, raised two and a half million pounds, and that raised awareness. And I think just a final little snapshot, um, it's been quiet since then, and then I was fortunate enough to be asked to talk to them. And, you know, we, we discussed it in detail, how we would do it, and I think we, we all felt comfortable that, yeah, we would do it well. And gosh, John, it was heartening. I mean, the typical media, the Guardian, obviously have a tracking device so they can tell how many people read an article, how long they spend on that article. Mm. And this article in the first 48 hours was read 1.2 million times, wow. which is a lot because rugby league normally, if I, I mean, I, I love, I interview all kinds of sportsmen and women. Mm. And I love interviewing the rugby league. Some of the most amazing interviews I think I've done because the, the nature of the sport is such that, you know, people are just honest and open and genuine people with stories to tell. Mm. But on a typical rugby league interview, the traffic, as they call it online, is not huge, Mm -hmm. which is such a shame. But this showed how this story actually, it's got nothing to do with sport. Mm -hmm. Although I think it has, and personally, I think it has quite a lot to do with sport Mm -hmm. for a number of reasons. But I think it touched people who don't care about sport. And they just saw it as a love story and as a human story. And I think for Robert Lindsay, it lifted them too, because they were just a deluge of messages swamped them for, for days. Mm. And I think, you know, that meant a lot to them, mainly also because other people who don't have the platform he has were saying to him that he actually articulated their views mm. and made them feel less lonely in their illness. So mm. it had had a big impact, which is good. Yeah. Just on that incredible gesture from Kevin Sinfield running marathon after marathon after marathon to raise money and awareness for the boroughs and M&D research, because this was in the middle of UK's long winter lockdown, and it seemed it seemed to be another gift, really, not just to Rob and Lindsay and the kids, but to the wider community, you know, showing the best of friendship, doing something for someone without ever considering receiving anything in return. I imagine it would have lifted so many spirits, not just Rob's, you know, through a whole particularly tough period for the country yeah absolutely yeah it was 
you know, in the midst of a, a lockdown and a tough time. And I interviewed Kevin about four days after he did his seventh. Mm. And um, again, Kevin's just an incredible person. And and he, he just sort of, you know, he's so down to earth and he downplayed it completely. He said, look, it was my mate. <laughs> I did it for him. He would have done it for me. And this is, you know, the whole lead story is quite a romantic one mm. because they had this, as you articulated so well, they were dominant for so long and won championship after championship. But out of their squad, almost, I think, 70% were local kids coming from the academy, become these huge stars in league over here. And so they, they were genuine mates who'd known each other since they were, you know, teenagers mm. and played together for, like, Rob is a one-club man. Kevin Sinfield is a one-club man. Mm. So they have such a bond. So, yeah, what Kevin did was... You know, in terms of uh, physicality, an enormous feat. Mm. Just in the human gesture, well, he lifted so many people. But mm. yeah, absolutely. And amidst all the generosity afforded to Rob, Rob's also shown the way as the perfect recipient of generosity. You know, a lot of people like myself, you know, find it hard to receive generosity, but Rob shows the way. You know, gracious, appreciative, positive, and also emotionally yeah. very generous in return too. Yeah. And I think, Jono, that's because he, he said to me, you know, what about the postman, the guy who works at a factory, the dustbin guy, you know, people doing hard jobs that there's no one thinks about them. Mm. They also get this disease. Mm-hmm. And so that's why he feels kind of duty-bound to, and he's such a modest person and self-effacing. He doesn't want to be the spokesman mm. for anything. But actually, in this case, I think, you know, people are now talking, you know, they've named the disease after him. Mm. And indeed, they name it after him. He said that was not his ambition <laughs> as a teenager to have a disease named after him. But what it's meant to him is that people have actually started to learn about the disease. And if they're showing early symptoms, it might be nothing. More than likely, it's nothing at all. Mm. But if they feel they have any of the symptoms that he showed in the beginning, they're going to their doctor so much more quickly. Mm. So, you know, he's proud about that. So, yeah, he's become the symbol. And for me, you know, John, one of the other moving things was his main consultant, a neuroscientist, a doctor, is a woman mm. of Chinese ethnicity. And... She was on the BBC documentary I mentioned earlier, and she said to him how much he had helped her because mm. since she was on television talking about the disease, when she's been back at work, a lot of men who maybe were kind of dismissive of her, you know, suddenly looked upon her kind of new eyes, mm. uh, which is awful to think you've got to go on TV to you know, have medical colleagues acknowledge your expertise, but... Mm. That was clearly happening because of her ethnicity and perhaps gender and, you know, how this had helped her. So, you know, he and Lizzie said to me, those little moments which they had no idea that they'd helped her in that way until, you know, she said that, have also made them think that a lot of good has come out of this awful disease. Mm. Yeah. And Don, there's obviously a book coming out about Rob's life in August. You've read a draft. Can can you give us a hint into what to expect? Yeah, it's both written by a guy called Ben Durs, who's an expert in, in this field. And, and Ben has done a particularly good job. He's captured Rob's voice 
perfectly. Mm. And I think it's a good balance because, you know, it pays due respect to his sporting career. And there's a lot about the rugby, mm. which is what, you know, people want to hear too. Mm. We want to hear about the achievements. So what comes over so clearly in the book is you know, I was a little, especially when he was a boy, you know, he was a little boy. He was always the tiniest in any team he played. Mm. And he's only five foot four now. So when he was playing in that sort of gigantic lead side, he was the smallest player, yeah. weighed half most of the weight of his opponents, and yet he, he could tackle. You know, he, he was brave, skillful, fast, and the book captures how against all odds, this tiny little boy and then tiny little man did unbelievable feats. Mm. And that ability to defy the odds sort of has helped him in his illness. He was always told he was too small to make it in rugby but he certainly showed you know he was good enough mm. you know he's been told he's only got two years to live and he's going to attempt to defy those odds mm. and make the most of, of each thing so the book i think jono captures the two sides of his life his current situation but it's also captures his humor and his warmth but it's also quite a deep insight into the sport the ups and downs and it wasn't all up you know he mm. he had a, a stage where for about four seasons He's a scrum half and, and he was being left on the bench and then he was moved to hooker, which he didn't want to do. Mm. And he just had a bit of a difficult time with, with one coach, which they're fine now, but it was just, you know, it happens in sport. Yeah. A player, a coach can have a bit of a personality clash. So it doesn't shy away from that. It talks about that. It also talks about concussion, which I think is an important issue mm. in sport. And it's a, it's a fascinating book and hopefully it'll be out in Australia as well. I think people will enjoy it. Yeah. Again, despite the subject. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of people would get a lot out of it, including, you know, all that information about his career, because it's easy to forget, but it's an astonishing career. Absolutely astonishing, all the achievements in his career. And I, I know even, even in Australia, obviously, we, we don't follow the Super League too closely, but aware of Super League and, and the big players. And even when there were internationals against Australia, I remember the talk always being around Rob Burrow. Yeah, but he might be too small for international level. So there was always, even though he was at the top of his game, at the top of his sport, there was still always that doubt foisted upon Rob. And he always, every single time, yeah. uh, stared them down, really. No, there's a lovely little passage in the book. It's not long, but it, it kind of, the, the Aussies know much more about the game than the Brits over here because he, he captained, I think he captained England schoolboys on a tour of Australia. So mm. he would have been about 16, 17. And he was spotted by a a number of, of scouts with leading clubs in Australia and, you know, offered deals. So the Aussie scouts knew that he was a good player, yeah. but he, he didn't want to leave uh, Yorkshire, so he stayed in England. But yeah, he, I think he felt that it was quite an honour to him that the home of, of rugby league, some of the top scouts in the business saw at age 16, mm. even though he was tiny, he had a huge ability. Yeah. And you mentioned concussion there, I guess. There's obviously a potential link between MND and and repeated concussions, uh, which you touched on in the piece. And I guess it's a, an example of Rob and Lindsay's approach to things, kind of a matter-of-fact approach, but focusing on the, the positives in that they don't shy away from that sort of conversation, but it's obviously not something that they're, they're focusing on at all. No, I think Lindsay was interesting in the sense that she, as I mentioned, is a physio and has, has a medical knowledge. And she... She said, not based on hard scientific evidence, obviously, but her instinct is that, yes, MND was caused by, I think he had up to about 30 concussions. Mm. Obviously, so many other bangs to the head, and she feels there is a link. But clearly, and I think he might do too, 
but he just feels he's so lucky to have had the career he had so he doesn't want to speculate on well was it caused by that he just feels it's bad luck that he got the illness Lindsay clearly feels there is a link between the two and I asked them the question how would they feel if their son Jackson who's I think only about two now how would they feel if, if he started playing the sport Rob said oh he'd love it and he said he won't be alive to see it but he'd love his son because it's, it's such a fantastic sport Lindsay you know, was honest and said she hopes he doesn't play because she saw how her in-laws they were always so anxious mm. when their son was playing and she said when she was watching her husband play it was so difficult mm. because she knew the immense physicality and the the hits that these players absorb but yeah she also said she would never stop her son she said ideally she was hoping he's going to do ballet but after she heard Rob's answer she said well I guess that's ballet out the window now <laughs> and she said she will support her son if he plays and she said she would never want to stop people playing sport because the things that sport and rugby league in particular teach kids is is huge and she totally accepts the positive aspects of it but both of them feel more scientific work needs to be done to analyse the consequences of repeated concussions and the links, potential links with MND. That's right. Yeah, I, I guess there are two issues there. There's, there's obviously the ongoing research about the link between concussion and CTE, which is uh, quite a, a strong link. But yeah, yeah. The concussions and MND, that's a separate piece of research. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Not much work has been done on it. So, so no one knows yeah, um, that's right. at this stage. Now, Don, uh, I'm not a writer, uh, but I like writing. I'm curious to hear about how you approach a story like this. There's obviously a beautiful story here, uh, but you know if you get it right, it can be really powerful too. So how hard is it not to get ahead of yourself in a situation like this and let the story kind of come out as it should? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I guess to, to my, I, I sort of write books. That's my, my main vocation. Mm. But for The Guardian, I do weekly sports interview. And so in, in the interview sort of section of my life, there's two parts to it. There's the interview itself, like you and I are doing now. Mm. And then I go away and I write up the interview. And in the interview, I always attempt to make the person I'm interviewing feel as comfortable as possible and that it's a conversation more than just a question answer kind of exchange mm. and then the difficulty is you know you can do an hour-long interview and then you have to distill it into 2,000 words which sounds a lot but actually it's not so much yeah. and this one I spent you know we did two lengthy interviews and then so many text messages and emails so I had so much information that I had to piece together but I actually felt confident about this one partly because the interviews had gone so well mm. and they'd just given me such clear direction on how to do this I just understood them and I felt I, I knew I could put into words all I'd seen so it was I wouldn't say it was easy because I spent a lot of time it took at least two and a half days to mm. write that piece but I almost enjoyed it which sounds a weird word to use because you're writing about someone who's dying mm. it's amid sadness but I actually just I, I was kind of determined to do justice to them and it, it meant that it didn't actually feel like work and mm. um but it's, it's quite a, yeah, it's, it's not an easy thing to do. But this one just, I felt the click. Well, I don't feel click. And I think, oh my God, I just wish I could do it again. But this one I felt happy with. And the most important thing is, I mean, normally, uh, you know, I wouldn't ever share 
my work with the interviewee before because professional sportsmen and women have agents who want to yeah. distort and manipulate the narrative, as they call it, and make sure that their client comes out in glowing light. So it's important that I keep that distance and do not share my work with the interviewee. But in this case, I actually asked them, could I show it to them? Because I actually felt this is not a piece of journalism. This is about their lives. And I wanted to make sure that they were happy with the way the interview had been written. Yeah. And I was so pleased, you know, that, that they liked it a lot. So it was an unusual time, but I, I loved it. And, you know, I'm keeping close touch with them. And I'm sure I'm going to send, you know, the link to this uh, little podcast because I know they'll, they'll like to hear about it. And also, you know, I think they'll, they'll love the fact that people in Australia are thinking of them too. Mm. Oh, that's lovely. Now, a final question, a bit more broadly, I guess, on, on writing. You've profiled many people over the years. Like you said, you've written a dozen books on non-sporting and sporting subjects, such as Eddie Jones, yeah. Stephen Gerrard. Do you have any rules you stick to to ensure you're getting to the heart of the issue or a personality and getting beyond what the public already knows? I, I, I hope so. I mean, I always go in... You know, we all have preconceptions. And when you're interviewing a famous person, of course, how you've got to have your preconception because you've followed this person or, or seen him in the media for, mm. for many, many years. So it's difficult to set those preconceptions to one side. But I attempt to do that as much as possible. And I also go in attempting to learn something new about that person. And I always have an aim. If I could learn five new things about that person, I would have done something quite good. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's quite difficult, especially it's a hugely famous person to get to that point but I think I convey to people that we're starting with a clean slate and I want to give them an opportunity to talk about their lives and then as far as possible John I, I keep myself out of it and allow people to make up their own minds I don't always obviously agree with what my interviewees are saying sometimes if it's something particularly that irks me then I, I will say in print or I'll challenge them while we do an interview but on the whole, I tend to let their words speak for themselves. And it seems to work. So, so that's, you know, if I can learn yeah. something new about them, then I think other people will be interested. And if I can also get beyond the persona, because most of them are famous, and so we have a cliched depiction of them. I want to actually get to the person within that famous persona. And, you know, I want to, you know, if we say someone like, say, for example, just Usain Bolt, when he was at the height of his powers, the mm. fastest man in the world, I would want to know how he felt in the last hour before the Olympic 100-meter final. Mm. That was difficult because Bolt was such a jokey kind of guy. I didn't mm. actually crack that. <laughs> I didn't get to the inner heart of him. But I think that's what I'm always looking for. Those lonelier, quieter moments when someone at the peak of sport is actually having to face the deepest challenges, mm. or maybe it's in their past, what has shaped them and motivated them and helped them become this exceptional person. Mm. Something happened somewhere along the line to give them that motivation. So those are the kind of things I'm, yeah. I'm always looking for. So the interviews are not so much about sport, they're more about the lives, and I think hopefully the inner lives of these people. And with this particular interview, it was sort of poignant because here was a, a man who couldn't talk, and yet, with his help, we actually got deep into his inner life, into his head, mm. where he had these voiceless thoughts. And he helped us sort of put that down on paper, which yeah. was such a privilege to yeah. be with him. Fascinating. Well, Don, like I said in the intro, this article in The Guardian really moved me. And I know it's a, a moving story in and of itself, but I also know uh, there was an immense skill in the way that you told the story, a real deafness 
that enabled Rob and Lindsay to shine through our screens and our pages and into our souls. So thanks again for that piece. Go well in the future. And thanks for joining the Progressive Rugby League podcast. All the best, Don. Thank you, John. Progressive Rugby League. Well, there you go. You know, I felt compelled to get in touch with Don after reading his piece and he was so generous in taking the time to speak with us in between a couple of deadlines he had on his plate. Hope you enjoyed the chat. And it goes without saying all the love in the world to Rob and Lindsay Burrow, their three beautiful kids and their wider family and friend network. All the very best. All right. Until we next meet somewhere within the Rugby League Kaleidoscope Rugby League hobby and see ya.